Our reading today is from 2 Samuel 7, verses 1 through 16. Now when the king lived in his house, and the Lord had given him rest from all of his surrounding enemies, the king said to Nathan the prophet, See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells in a tent. And Nathan said to the king, Go, do all that is in your heart, for the Lord is with you. But that same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan. Go and tell my servant David, Thus says the Lord, Would you build me a house to dwell in? I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. In all places where I have moved with all the people of Israel, did I speak a word with any of the judges of Israel whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel? saying, Why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, Thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pastor, pasture, from following the sheep, that you should be prince over my people Israel. And I have been with you wherever you went, and have cut off all your enemies from before you. And I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. Moreover, the Lord declares to you that the Lord will make you a house. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. So we are today at the last week of Advent, and it has been a glorious time indeed. Uh, We have been covering the return from exile. Last year in Advent, we spent most of the time discussing the reason for exile and the anticipation that Jesus Christ in his second coming will, spiritually speaking, return uh, us from exile to a degree. That is, we are strangers. As Christians, we believe we are strangers and aliens in the land. Jesus Christ teaches that we are not of this world, but that we are in this world. Likewise, also, uh, the book of Revelation makes clear, as all the patriarchs, their meta-narrative makes clear, is we are looking for a city of God, a city not of man, a city not found on this earth. So spiritually speaking, Jesus's second coming is to be seen as a return from exile or a redemption out of exile. But also, Jesus' second coming is the establishment not only of the people in the land, but a righteous king 
over the people in the land. We've, we've talked about this need for a righteous king before. We're going to refocus on it today in the Davidic covenant. Uh, as we sang earlier today, we talked about the Lord's kingdom. Your kingdom shall reign over all the earth. We anticipate that Jesus, is Christ, Jesus Christ's initial reign, which he, he has now after the ascension, uh, that reign will become more progressively uh, clear and Uh, glorious, and also uh, joyful to the people of the earth. That is, there are nations who still rebel against the Christ and, and the Lord's, you know, the Lord's anointed. But as time goes on, the Lord through his Holy Spirit, through the church, is working to bring his kingdom about more and more uh, as the age progresses. So we're going to look at why we believe that and also uh, how Jesus Christ specifically in his coming at his uh, first coming and also in his second coming, is to be that anointed one to sit on the throne. Uh, If you're unfamiliar with the term Christ, uh, Christ simply means it's not just Jesus's last name. It's not like, you know, you got John Weiss or Emily Weiss or Nathan Hager. You know, Christ is not Jesus's last name. Christ means the, the anointed king or the anointed Messiah who is to be the one to sit on the throne of his father, father David. That is what Christ specifically means. So when we understand Jesus as the Christ or, or the phrase Jesus Christ, we are talking about not only the person, God himself, Emmanuel, but also God himself, Emmanuel, and uh, his role as the king. And so today we see this great unification uh, over and over again. The, the old covenant, there are shadows of this, but in the new covenants, it's made clear God needs to come and tabernacle among his people, and there needs to be a king. And if you, if you uh, stick with it today, I think you can see those two elements married together in this passage. Uh, Paul uh, mentions these ideas over and over again. Peter in Acts 2 in his great defense shows the demonstration of how those two ideas, which the, the uh, faithful Jews at the time were not able to see, it was a mystery that was hidden, but now through Jesus Christ has been revealed that God would not only come and reside among his people, but also that he would be their king. It wouldn't just be a deliverance from their sin so that God could come and live in the temple, but rather it was also a deliverance from their foreign oppressors, from their laziness to throw the uh, Canaanites out of the land, from their uh, wandering kings so that they would have a true king in the land. So it's both of those ideas married together in one. And we see that in that David wishes to do something for the Lord. And yet, before he is given permission to do that, he has to connect with the prophet. And in that place, we begin to pick up today's story. We're we're turning at this point in our uh, celebration of Advent from the theme of just the return from exile at a corporate level, but also to focus on how Jesus Christ in his coming not only brings the people into the land, but installs himself as king. If the people are truly to live in the land, if they're going to survive and to thrive in the land, they need a righteous king over which uh, uh, would would rule them. Just as Jesus Christ is the promised seed of Abraham, he also is the promised seed that is given to David. In the, in the reading today we had, it said offspring. Again, as Paul, Paul makes clear in the book of Galatians, it, he doesn't say to seeds, 
but rather to a seed. Jesus Christ is that seed of David, which is the promised fulfillment. So Jesus Christ comes in his coming. He comes to do that. Uh, Christmas is not just about snow, pine trees. I love those things. But Christmas is not just about a national uh, Messiah coming to, or a global Messiah coming to the world. But really, Christmas is about a national Messiah. And when we sing joy to the world, the reason we can say joy to the world is because there is peace to Israel, and through the peace to Israel comes peace to the nations. Now, of course, I'm not speaking of uh, what you may think of Israel today in a geopolitical term, but rather a national identity, uh, which was the, the seedbed of the church. What I'm, what I'm speaking of is that God fulfilled his promise to Abraham through Jesus Christ. Likewise, God fulfilled his promise to David through Jesus Christ, and it is that distinction of the Davidic covenant which we look at today. So we're going to touch on five areas, the idea that God wishes to tabernacle among his people. And what that means is it means to tent or to intent, uh, to tent about. Uh, th- those are weird words. It, it's surely biblical language. It's not modern English, but it is, it's a right understanding. God wishes to come and reside in his people. If you look at the book of Numbers, God commands that Moses and the Levites encompass around the Ark of the Covenant, and then the tribes are put uh, three to the north, three to the east, three to the south, and three to the west. Why? Why is that? Why are the Levites around the Ark of the Covenant? Why is Moses near the Ark of the Covenant? Why are the uh, tribes put around the covenant? It's because God wishes to be in the midst of his people. We're going to look at how that is spoken of here, and it's alluded to, and we see that in Christmas. We're also going to look at God's blessings that he enumerates to David. There is a a, a mini uh, recitation or a reminder of the accounts that God gives to David in the beginning of the Davidic covenant. We're going to look specifically at the Davidic covenant. After that, we're going to look at uh, not through this passage, but through a dis- short discussion of the history that follows our reading today, the need for a king. And then finally, we're going to look at the messianic promise that God gives to David, a promise that is unthinkable when you, you stop to consider it. So that being said, let's get into it. Uh, David considers his military might at the beginning of this, at the beginning of this chapter to be the reason for the prosperity and the peace that is on the nation of Israel. If we look closely in verse one, it says, now when the king lived in his house. So you've got David and David has established a, uh, a palace, a kingly palace. David is living in that palace. It says that, there, that David used cedars of Lebanon in the, verse, in the second verse. It mentions there is a house of cedar. These pieces of cedar are not small trees. These are great trees. In fact, the Old Covenant describes the cedars of Lebanon as being the greatest trees that were in the Mediterranean area. That they were the greatest trees that they knew about. These cedars are probably thousands of years old and uh, huge, and yet David is, is right to make a palace out of these things. David has established his kingdom, and it says that the Lord, in verse 1, it says that the Lord had given him rest from his surrounding enemies. David 
is understanding that he is rightly fulfilling God's intention as, as the king over Israel. God installs Saul through Samuel, and yet Saul turns away. And then God installs David, and there's a brief overlap where David is anointed king, but not functioning king. Saul and David are warring. David not only defeats a evil king who is um, messing with the spiritual condition of Israel, but also conquers the surrounding armies around him. That was God's goal in bringing Israel into the land that he might judge the evil peoples of the, of the Canaanites. It is not genocide when the Lord God himself commands judgment against a nation which he has been patient with for 10 generations, which is the period of the judgment that, that was awaiting. And so God is right to desire that David would destroy the surrounding nations, and David does this to a, to a degree. Now, it's not complete. This military victory is probably 90%, and, and yet this is the, the high point in the nation of Israel. This is the golden age uh, of their uh, uh, occupation of the land. And David, at this point, begins to think to himself, well, I should extend my hand to show favor to the Lord, to repay him or, or what have you. Now, I don't, I don't think that David is necessarily doing this in a haughty way for sure, but I think there is some element of it. And so Nathan hearing this uh, perceives by the spirit and he knows in a, in a way that yes, there will be a temple built in the future. And so Nathan does not consult Yahweh, but rather knows, well, you know, I, by the spirit, I have a general indication that this is God's desire in the future and someone would have had to build it. It seems right. Nathan then says, the Lord is with you. Now, Nathan is not chastised for not inquiring of the Lord, but the Lord immediately responds with a, sm a small word of rebuke. The Lord tells Nathan how he dwelt among his people as the context for why David cannot build the temple. God uh, says through, to the prophet Nathan, who then goes on and says to uh, David in verse 5, thus says the Lord, uh, would you build a house for me to dwell in? The Lord is challenging David and asking if it is David's right to build this temple. David, David, by inquiring of Nathan, is not presuming, and therefore he is not struck against. That is, God doesn't judge Nathan, uh, sorry, David, but God does tell David, it is not your place to build my house. And what this says to us in a large degree is that the salvation which God accords to his people, his desire to tabernacle among them, is not a result of their initiative. You cannot build David's house. Uh, if you establish your own house, you cannot build God's house in your life. And so God, in the midst of this, is giving a warning to his king that he's installed over his people. He says, would that you would build me a house. He then says in verse six, I have not lived in a house since the day I brought up the people of Israel from Egypt to this day, but I have been moving about in a tent for my dwelling. God's home in the midst of the people of Israel was a tent. This was a temporary uh, tent, but like we had seen earlier, when, when the Lord is returning from the people from exile, Ezekiel sees God's heavenly tabernacle as a tabernacle that's set on wheels. We talked about it as God's chariot, metaphorically speaking, bringing the people back into the land. Likewise, when God was bringing up his people from Egypt, he destroys Pharaoh's chariots and installs one of his own, the temple by which he moves about his people. 
And so God at this place is saying, is it, is it you to move the story forward or is it me? And he rebukes David in a light way. In rebuking David, he then says uh, that it is permittable, but it won't be you. You won't do it. David in another place is told why, because he's a man of bloodshed. And, and David uh, was guilty of iniquity. He, he had killed uh, Uriah, as we'll talk about in, in a minute. But because of David's sin, he was not permitted to build the house. This speaks of the holiness of God's house. It speaks of the holiness of God's work on the earth. But it also speaks of man's inability to produce the building of God in his life. Though David has conquered the surrounding enemies, Yahweh reminds him that it was he who did it, not David. In verse 7, sorry, uh, we're not even talking about verse 7, excuse me. Uh, Though David's conquered these enemies, Yahweh is telling him, it's not you who did this, it's I who did this. This is the remembrance that God wishes to establish in his people. He says when giving giving the law, he warns them against after having come come into the land to begin to, in the pride of their heart, say, my hand and my might has gained me this wealth. And the Lord says, lest you forget that it's the Lord who teaches you to make wealth in order that he might confirm his covenant with you. David is beginning to slip into this process. The reason we know this is later he'll take a census and it'll bring judgment against the people. Now at this point, God gives David a small rebuke and yet it's not overly harsh and David doesn't encounter any sort of uh, military opposition. There's no, there's no visible judgment, but there is a word of caution, a word of pause. And so Yahweh's desire is that he would live among his people, right? And before David establishes the national boundaries of Israel completely, Yahweh does not wish to set up his temple. The the nations in the land must be conquered completely, more so than they are at this point. And in that, God shows us his faithfulness because he is not willing that he would bring us into the land and yet not bring us into total victory. God is wishing to show his holiness and the, the rule through David which he wishes to exercise over the land, which we'll see as a metaphor uh, of the people and the world. So the sin of the people in this in this time is regularly uh, causing the wrath of God to break out against against them. If you look, if you remember in the Exodus, at one point the people begin to turn to other gods, and and there are little fiery serpents which the Lord Himself sends out into the people, and they start to bite individual Israelites. These Israelites die because of the bite. Uh, Moses raises up a standard, a bronze serpent put on a staff, speaking of Jesus Christ, the the true wise serpent, not the satanic image there, but rather the the true serpent, the wise crafty one, uh, who is given up as sacrifice for the people. When the people look to the bronze serpent, they are rescued from that place. But also in another story, Moses calls all of the Levites and all the men of Israel to take a sword on their side and to go through the camp, slaying their brothers, anyone who would not turn back to Yahweh. So this is an extreme situation. God wants to dwell among his people, yet his people are so rebellious that fire regularly breaks out from the throne, that is from the Ark of the Covenant. And in that place, there is a tension. This leads to our great question, which is answered in Christmas, is how is God going to tabernacle among his people and and yet not destroy them completely? This This is made reference to in the beginning part of this chapter, and building the house, building the temple, 
for God uh, that David wishes to do is eventually the goal, but it's not to be done by David. It's to be, uh, it's to be done by the Lord. So God gives to uh, David a warning, and in this place of warning, he, he then describes that there will be a house that's been built, but that house will be built by Yahweh, not by David. And by, by the house being built by David's son, we understand that Yahweh is going to keep his promise that he makes to David, which we're going to look at in detail. Verse 8, now therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep, that, what an interesting phrase, that you should be prince over my people. God not only has the idea of tabernacle, but also of shepherd here in this passage. God uh, installs a king over his nation of shepherds. If you remember when Israel goes down into Egypt, they're all described as shepherds. So Israel is a shepherding people, and they themselves are the sheep. And, and God installs a king over his people who is a shepherd, alluding to the true shepherd, Jesus Christ. God makes reference to the future in the person of David and his life circumstances. And in this place, uh, he gives to uh, David a, a message of warning, but also a message of remembrance that it is God's grace which has brought David into this place of safety. He says in verse nine, I have been with you wherever you went and have cut off all of your enemies from before you. David, although he executed the military activity, did not win the war and did not go before himself, but rather Yahweh went before him. And so Yahweh reminds David that it is not David's hand which has done this, but God's. Verse 9, uh, the second part says, and I will make for you a great name, like the name of the great ones of the earth. God is going to install David in the, the lineage and history of the earth so that whenever, for all time forward, David is mentioned, we remember uh, his kingdom and also the one who is the true uh, son of David. And in this place, God gives a great and mighty promise, but that promise is given in a place of grace. I, I will never cease to rest from attempting to combat within you the idea uh, that the antinomians wish to uh, challenge your faith with, that the law was God's judgment on Israel, or that the law was a harsh thing, and God brought grace uh, in the person of Jesus Christ to undo the law. No, the law was grace. In that, before Israel was given the law, God did what? He heard their cry, raised up a prophet named Moses. Moses then executed judgments and wrought the plagues against Egypt. And God brought them out of Egypt and took them to the mount. And in that mount, he allowed Moses and the elders to eat with him in communion on top of a fiery smoke-filled mountain and then gave the national provision for how Israel was to leave. That was grace upon grace. What happens to Israel is the result of her taking the law into a misguided form. The nation of Israel over and over again turns away from the true worship of Yahweh to the performance of the law as a form of righteousness. Now, of course, I'm not speaking of a similar error that says that the cultural provisions which were to designate Israel culturally from the other nations are still in effect. They are not. God has broken down the dividing wall completely. And yet, the moral law, which is contained within the national law of Israel, is still in force. Of course, we're not supposed to follow any other God. 
Of course we're not supposed to murder and commit adultery and be envious, etc., etc. You know that to be true. But what, what God is doing here again is saying, David, before I'm giving you this promise, before I'm about to bestow the Davidic covenant on you, uh, I'm going to remind you that I was the one who set you in as king. And I was the one who's gone before you and defeated all your surrounding enemies. And in, there, in that situation, I now give you another promise. This is grace upon grace. So God gives to David this amazing promise. And, and yet in this promise, we already begin to see a mysterious uh, description of the way in which this promise unfolds. In all the covenants, grace precedes uh, the, the future blessing. And in this covenant, we see that it's partially fulfilled by Solomon, but the covenant itself contains language that is too mysterious to simply be a natural explanation. We will now turn to that. And I want you to engage your analytical mind to think about what these words mean and, and think about if they make sense to your to your natural mind, or if they require a deeper meaning. In verse uh, verse 9 and 10, and I have been with you from wherever you went. And then the promise, that's a a remembrance of what God's already done. And then the the next verse is the promise, or the next sentence is the promise. And I will make you a great name, like the name of the great ones on the earth. David already has a great name. He defeated multiple kings. His fame was beginning to spread throughout the world. People understood what was happening in the land of Canaan. And the reason you know that is because even before David shows up, the military conquests that God brings Israel through are beginning to spread like wildfire. When, when uh, the Israelites leave Egypt, word makes it to Rahab, the harlot, who was in the city of Jericho, we know that all the land is is yours and all the nations melt like wax before you. We know that God's given you the land. And so now after that, David comes in and actually achieves those military victories. And at that point, his fame spreads. And yet Yahweh's promise here is that he would have a great name. He already has one. Maybe we'll look at verse 10. It'll be more clear. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them. Remember what we talked about in the last two weeks, how Israel was going back into the land and Israel was seen as a new garden of Eden. In the wilderness, it says that God waited for a generation until what? So that a new generation would come in who do not know good from evil. Like Adam and Eve, God is wishing to place people in a particular place place of land, a plot of land, and those who do not know good from evil, that is, they don't have their own opinion of morality, but rather are able to be brought up in maturity after the Lord. And then he says he plants uh, a garden in the Garden of Eden. Likewise, God's doing this again with the, the promised land. So in verse 10, it says, I will place, I will appoint a place for my people Israel. Well, what was the promised land? if God is yet to appoint a place. Continuing on, so that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more, and violent men shall afflict them no more as formerly. Then verse 11, we see, from the time that I appointed judges over my people Israel, I will give you rest from all your enemies. What has already happened? In verse one, it says, now when the king lived in his house, the Lord had given rest from all of his surrounding enemies. What mysterious language. The the last half of verse 11, moreover, the Lord declares to you that he will make you a house. 
verse one again. Now, when the king lived in his house. May I submit while you're reading your Bible, it's more confusing than you might immediately notice. What God is doing in making these extravagant promises to David is he's saying that there is a thing which I need to do in the earth that you can't even come close to. And beyond that, even the, the, even the small victories that you think you have, they will look like no victories at all in the light of the victory that God brings. David already lives in a house, yet Yahweh declares that he will make him one. David already has defeated all the surrounding enemies, yet God says, I will give you victory over them. David already has seen God through the exodus and the bringing into the land. God already has planted Israel in the land, and yet God says, I will plant them in the land as if it has not yet been done. It's very odd. These perplexing questions demand, they drive us, they, they, they should point you, they should make you wonder, what does God mean? They should require a deeper fulfillment. And we rightly understand that Solomon does give a temporary fulfillment or a partial fulfillment, yet there is no way that Solomon, mighty king as he, he is, could plant the people again, nor could he defeat already defeated enemies, nor could he build a house when David already lived in one. These are things that no man can do because they, they speak of spiritual realities that are larger than and more important than the natural realities. Just as David falls away for a time and then he repents, so does Solomon and so do Solomon's children. And so this promise, the, the central promise of David's, uh, of the Davidic covenant, that there will be a man on the throne, this begins to clearly be demonstrated as impossible to be achieved by man. Solomon, just like his father David, turns away. David is turned away when he looks upon Bathsheba. He then sees Bathsheba, and uh, Bathsheba, having already been married to Uriah, one of David's 30 chosen military captains, he decides to take Uriah and put him at the front of a battle and then tell all the other soldiers to draw back. What's going to happen to Uriah? To Uriah? He's going to be killed. David is guilty of murder. That is why the Lord tells David, you are a man of bloodshed. Not because David had conquered other armies, but because David was guilty of murder, especially the murder of a fellow Israelite. And so David is not only guilty of adultery with one woman, but Solomon multiplies the iniquities and, and produces for himself hundreds of concubines. And what happens, we see it clearly that Solomon, as prophesied earlier, that Solomon would multiply his harem and that those women would lead his heart over to the worship of Baal and Ashtoreth. He is no longer following Yahweh and Solomon is judged for this. And then it gets worse and it gets worse. The point of the book of 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, and 1st and 2nd Chronicles, the point of that book is to convince you that Israel needs a truly righteous king. And it's not going to come through man's effort nor uh, the line of David unless Yahweh himself intervenes and intervenes mightily. So the question arises, we, we looked at one of the great questions earlier at the beginning, is how is God going to tabernacle amongst the people when the people are full of iniquity and they regularly provoke God's wrath? How will God live amongst his people, how will he tabernacle them? That is uh, tabernacle among them. That's one of the great questions. And we see another great question is, how is God going to raise up a godly seed 
from whom the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant would be fulfilled? That is the other great, uh, great question. Of course, those great questions are also along with the other uh, spiritually provoked questions. How will God plant Israel when Israel is already in the land? How will God give them victory from their enemies when he already has done that? The, 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 the nature of the question leads us to examine uh, what is God saying beyond these questions that these physical realities point to, but don't uh, give a, a proper or concrete fulfillment. This promise to David is exceedingly great. Think about what you hope for your children or for your future. Let's say you don't have kids. Uh, what, what, what is your hope for your legacy, for your uh, progeny? You want a better life for them than you had. And also you want them, if you're a believer, to worship the Lord more deeply and more thoroughly than you have in your own life. That is an extreme hope. That is what tells you if your heart is beating. Uh, morally speaking, you wish for the good of your children. And this promise that God gives David is an amazing promise. He says, verse 12, when your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up what? Your offspring after you who shall come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. What a mighty promise. That is the worry of every man and every king, that there would be someone to carry on the lineage. Verse 13, he shall build a house for my name. That was in David's heart. He wished to do it, but he wasn't permitted. And so Solomon here is going to build the temple. And then he says, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. That is an amazing promise. If you have been a student of history, there is no nation geopolitically speaking or militarily speaking, that has ever existed forever. As Americans, it's hard for us to remember that. We, our, our nation has been here 400 years at most, if you count back from Plymouth. Uh, but God, God gives to David a, a promise saying, you will be established, the throne of your house will be established forever. That is an amazing promise, an unthinkable promise when you look at history. When you look at the types of depositions of kings or the types of coups that are executed against kings or the type of invasions that come from another power being raised up on the earth and invading. We, we see over and over again, nation is risen up, it is toppled. Nation is risen up, it's toppled. Kings build great cities, they're sacked, they're destroyed, they're sieged against. And God tells David, I will give your offspring a kingdom that it lasts forever. That is an amazing promise. Certainly we know that Solomon does build the temple, but we also know that Solomon turns away. How are we to understand God's word being true and yet these promises being uh, unable to be fulfilled by Solomon? There has to be a twofold meaning of these verses. There is no way that a human being who is, as we've looked at in prior weeks, is like the flower which quickly fades, like the grass which is cut down and then later burnt. There is no human who could fulfill the promise of a throne established forever. God's promise has two meanings, which are neither contradictory nor exclusive, in that there is some overlap but there's not a total overlap. Have you ever seen a Venn diagram? You've got a circle over here and maybe it's red, and then you've got a circle over here and maybe it's blue, and then the overlapping area, they show it as like purple or something like that. You ever seen one of those? That's what I'm trying to explain. This promise that God gives to David both has a fulfillment in Solomon, but it is plainly clear that 
a particular human could never have a throne which exists forever because it would require a king who lives forever, wouldn't it? So God gives this promise to him, and it is like a Venn diagram which overlaps mostly, but there are still parts where this blue area doesn't overlap this red area totally. Verse 14, I will be, him, I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the son of men. But my, verse 15, but my steadfast love will not depart from him as I took it from Saul, whom I put away before you. Now, we know that God truly is like a father to David. David is known as a man who is after God's own heart. And yet his son Solomon is similar to that. But Solomon quickly turns away from the worship of Yahweh to worship other gods who are not not gods at all. So we know that this verse cannot be speaking plainly of Solomon. It speaks to a deeper meaning, which to David was hidden, and yet to us it's been made clear through the person and work of Jesus Christ. Certainly Christ is not guilty of committing iniquity himself, such that this verse would apply to him literally, but metaphorically speaking, Christ was considered as one who was guilty by his father on the cross where he himself bore our sins. What does Colossians, uh, 2 Corinthians 2 say? It says that God considered him, Jesus Christ, who knew no sin, to be as sin for us. And this is how we understand this promise, speaking of not just a temporary fulfillment in Solomon, but a true lasting spiritual fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ did not commit iniquity himself, but rather on our behalf took upon iniquity and that he was disciplined as it were at the strikes of the Roman centurions who were beating him before his crucifixion. Moreover, Solomon does fall away from the worship of Yahweh, but even though Christ suffers the judgment of a just God against a terrible thing called sin, that is the holy wrath of God being poured out on Christ, that does not mean Christ is not loved by the Father. The strongest objection that I hear today against the substitutionary atonement, which I believe is the point of the gospel, is that it creates a false dichotomy in the Godhead. That is, if the Father pours out wrath on the Son, how can he still be loved? It's clear from this verse that God pouring out wrath, chastising his Son, is God's love. Now, I want you to see that clearly because it's not just my opinion, it's put here. I will be to him a father and he will be to me a son. Continuing the idea, when he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men. In our parenting class over the last, uh, I guess, nine weeks, although we meet every other week, so I think it's been five, five times, we've been talking about what is true Christian godly love. What is true Christian godly love in the context of both a married couple, but also a couple who has been granted children by the Lord? What does love look like? Love looks like disciplining your children. Now, the discipline with which God is speaking towards Solomon is not the same thing as the wrath which God put on Jesus Christ. God is not disciplining Jesus Christ as if he committed iniquity, but rather he is receiving wrath. So there is a difference, as we've been looking at, from discipline and punishment. But at this place, there is no dichotomy. It is not a problem to God to say to 
uh, to David that the promise for David's progeny or his offspring would be a father-son relationship, a filial relationship, and it would include the discipline with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. God is saying that if the kings of, of Israel commit iniquity, he will not let them persist in their iniquity, but he will bring a military judgment against the kings and that they would be punished. And this is what we understand to be fulfilled at the cross of Christ. We were guilty of mass, uh, of mass iniquity, mass rebellion against the Lord, and yet God does not give to us a punishment which we could not endure, but rather puts it upon his son. This punishment which we rightly deserved is not given to us, but rather to another. And that is what Jesus Christ comes to do. Now, you may say, well, that doesn't sound very Christmassy, but I assure you, Christmas is not just presents and ornaments. Those things are wonderful, and those things are one of the ways that we celebrate the event. But in the fulfillment of God's promises to his people, Israel, Christ comes to be the fulfillment. And those things include the judgment on the nation's sin and a provision for all of these questions that we've been looking at. How will God tabernacle among his people? He chooses to do through so through his son, Jesus Christ, in which the book of John chapter one says that he tabernacled among us. Jesus in taking on flesh is clothed like the tent covers the ark of the covenant he is clothed with flesh, and man and God are fully united in the person of Jesus Christ. He comes and tabernacles among us. Likewise, he is the one who is the true shepherd of Israel. David was a shepherd following sheep. Jesus is the true shepherd who has sheep who know his voice. Likewise, also, Jesus Christ is the one who fulfills these mysterious promises that they would be planted in a land and they would be disturbed no longer. They would have total victory from their enemies. Likewise, David would have a house that is built for him. This is the promise. This is what we hope to see. This is our, long, our longing, our long desperation, which at this point, uh, seems to us like a long time waiting, but it is a very right and sure thing that Jesus Christ will come again, and the kingdom which he now has will be manifestly more open to all, fulfilling in total the Davidic promise, the Davidic covenant. Solomon falls away, but Christ suffers the punishment in a just way, and the Father still loves him, and in doing that, proves that he is righteous to sit on the throne. He comes to establish a, an everlasting kingdom in which mankind can truly live, and this is what we celebrate at Christmas. Now, granted, again, I, as I mentioned earlier, this doesn't seem like a very Christmassy message. That's because it's an Advent message. And the true understanding of Christmas is God fulfilling the promises to Israel. Christianity, in the way that it is expressed today, is very ignorant of much of the content and, and language of the scriptures. That's why if, if most of what I said sounded weird to you, I would beg you come to our Christmas Eve service. We will read and discuss uh, the, prom the songs rather that Simeon, Mary, uh, and Zechariah give uh, in the first two chapters of Luke. And we will look at the content of those as being their uh, exclamations of praise at hearing that the Messiah has come, 
that is what Gabriel announced to Mary, Mary spreading that, that, uh, that news, causes them to break out in song, to break out in worship. And the language of their songs is all about promises fulfilled. That's what Christmas is about. Of course, through those, God has a supra-intended work. That is, that the message of the gospel would be proclaimed to all nations, but it comes through fulfilling promises given to his people. So let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We do ask, Lord, that we would see Jesus Christ as the one who comes to fulfill the promise that you made to David. We ask you, God, that you would give us an appreciation of this language, that we would see the great problem that your people create in uh, in understanding how you are to fulfill your promises when it appears all hope is lost quickly. Uh, Any time that your people touch these things uh, in the past, they quickly go astray from you. Lord, we ask that you would give us a, a truly biblically informed celebration of Christmas, that we would celebrate with all the stuff, with trees, snow, and and, and ornaments and decorations and gifts. But Lord, we would also understand that the greatest gift is your son, Jesus, the fulfillment of all your promises of gifts in the past. We ask you, God, that you would give us sweet understanding that would become for us savory, that it would, that it would be wonderful and joy producing in our hearts. Lord, we ask you that through true reclamation of Christmas, through the season of Advent, that you would give us a deep appreciation of these things, which don't feel very Christmassy, but certainly are. In Jesus' mighty name, amen.